0: Hello, everybody. This is Sean Cole. I'm the pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Understanding Christianity, today. I'm so thankful that you're listening to the podcast. Not sure how long we're going to go today. This may be a mega, like James White has his mega or jumbo uh, dividing lines on his Alpha and Omega ministries podcast. And speaking of, of James White, I've been very interested um, over the past couple of weeks of the exchange between uh, Dr. Leighton Flowers of Soteriology 101. As you know, we've had many interactions over the, over the past couple of years with his podcast. And um, I consider Leighton a brother in Christ and a friend, and we've had some, some positive interactions. He is a traditionalist Southern Baptist. I would have to say he's the most vocal proponent um, of that view. And Dr. James White, who is at Alpha and Omega Ministries, his dividing line program, uh, they've been going back and forth the past couple of weeks on this whole issue of, of total inability and dealing with those issues. And as I've been listening to the interaction between these two, Dr. White has really helped me put my finger on something that I was struggling with in the traditionalist view, but Dr. White really helped me to understand or see really where the divide is. And so I want to interact with... Not necessarily Leighton Flowers per se, although he is the spokesperson for the traditionalist movement um, on the podcast, and, and it seems like in social media, uh, he's the popular one out there that's espousing the traditionalist view. You have Rick Patrick of the Connect 316. He's also very vocal on Facebook and on the website SBC Today. Uh, you also have others out there as well. Um, but the traditionalist, the traditionalist Southern Baptists, the non-Calvinists, the traditionalists, uh, they they deny total inability. They will not deny total depravity, but they will say things like, you can't find a scripture that proves that men are morally incapable of responding to God's revelation. That's their claim. That's their assertion. That's their, their argument. Show me a scripture. Show me a text where the scripture proves that men are morally incapable of of responding to God's revelation. And they'll admit that they agree with total depravity in that humans are born sinful, but not so sinful that we cannot admit our need for a Savior when presented with the gospel. And this is where it really hit me. And I think Dr. White really hit the nail on the head with this. What they're arguing is that When presented with the gospel, we have the innate ability to admit that we need salvation. And as I've thought about that, the question that I want to bring up in this podcast is what truly is the nature of saving faith? Is genuine saving faith simply admitting that we need a Savior? Is that enough? And so what I want to look at in this podcast are three big fundamental questions, three big issues. Uh, Number one, the nature of fallen man. What does the scripture teach about fallen man? So the nature of fallen man. The second thing I want to look at is the need for sovereign regeneration. It flows from that doctrine of the nature of fallen man. And then the necessity of authentic conversion. What is conversion? Is it simply admitting that you need a Savior? What does the Bible teach about conversion? So let's first discuss the nature of fallen man. And I do want to quote Leighton Flowers from his website, Soteriology 101. Now, these are his exact words, quote, we believe man has the capacity to respond willingly to God's means of seeking to save the lost. Not that man would seek God if left alone. We believe our gracious God is actively working in and through creation, conscience, his bride, his Holy Spirit filled followers and his word to aid humanity in their conversion. I want you to pay careful attention to the language that is used. Obviously, Leighton is very careful to avoid semi-Pelagianism or Pelagianism. In that, he makes the qualification, not that man would seek God if left alone. And I appreciate that about their statement, about his statement. A Pelagian or a semi-Pelagian would say that man left alone would seek God without the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And so I know that there are many who would argue that the traditionalists are semi Pelagian. I think that in, in my conversations with Rick Patrick and Adam Harwood and Dr. Leighton Flowers, all these three men um, who I, I, I consider great men of God, godly men, I have come to the conclusion that they deny semi Pelagianism. But their view is very interesting. So they will deny semi-Pelagianism in in the sense that man left to his alone would not seek God. But here's where the, the real crux comes. Listen to what the statement that Leighton Flowers makes. God is working through creation, conscience, his bride, his Holy Spirit, and his word to aid humanity in their conversion. In other words, God assists or aids men with various means, and he lists those means, creation, which is in and of itself, that's general revelation, that's, that's, that's not enough to bring a person to salvation. Conscience, yes, we do have a conscience, um, his bride, the church, through evangelism, the church, the Holy Spirit followers, and his word to aid humanity in their conversion. So once those means are employed, the person can respond willingly. And so, conscience, creation, believers, the Word, those are sufficient means to assist or aid humanity to respond willingly. Notice what is left out in that statement. There is nothing about God overcoming spiritual inability to sovereignly regenerate a sinner to bring them all the way to conversion. It's simply an assisting. So it is not semi-Pelagianism. I want to be very clear. I want to be fair to the traditional Southern Baptists. They are not semi-Pelagianism. They are arguing that God does use means to bring about conversion, but it's only an assisting type of means. In some ways, it's almost like a prevenient grace, but it's not a Holy Spirit prevenient grace that an Arminian would argue for. It's more of creation, conscience, the word of God. Those are some sufficient means to bring someone to faith. So if confronted with the gospel, with the word of God, when that comes to a person, the, God has done his work in bringing the gospel to a person through an evangelist, through the church, through, through um, reading the Bible that's sufficient to enable a response. Now, here's the question that that, that needs to be asked. Why do some believe when those means are presented and others do not, given those assistive means? Now, their answer is libertarian free will. In other words, those means that God brings are... Not irresistible or powerful, but only aids, only assisting aids that bring knowledge so that a man can respond freely. Left to himself, he would never respond, but when given enough assistance, he will respond. Now, what makes this view so interesting, and so I don't want to use the word novel, I want to be fair, it's not semi-Pelagianism per se. It's not Arminianism with prevenient grace. It's obviously not Calvinism. It's, it's an animal unto itself. What it does is it denies total inability that both Calvinists and Arminians affirm. And so historically, when you look at the traditionalist view, in my opinion, it's outside the bounds of the historical arguments over the nature of fallen man. They do not believe in total Inability, spiritual deadness. Arminians believe in that. Their answer is prevenient grace needs to come to assist or overcome that deadness. Obviously, we as Calvinists believe God has to sovereignly regenerate. And so in their view, instead of sovereign regeneration or a traditional prevenient grace that an Arminian would argue for, they're arguing that God brings assisting means that God is working through evangelist and through witnessing and through uh, the church and through conscience and through creation and through the Bible that God inspired. And those means are sufficient to enable a person to use their free will to respond. Which again, I think is outside the bounds of the historical arguments over the fallenness of human nature. Now, what I want to do is I want to interact with the traditional statement. If you have not gone to the Connect 316 website and have looked at the traditional statement, you need to do that. So if you're listening to this, it may be helpful to go, I think it's connect316.net, and you can go to read the statement, um, or maybe afterwards you can go, I'm going to be reading this, but they have given their affirmations and denials of what they believe. And so it's very interesting that a group of Southern Baptists have actually given a doctrinal statement for public... Um, I guess the word consumption or viewing where people can sign it, which is interesting because uh, no other group has done that. Um, As a matter of fact, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is really the official doctrinal statement of what the Southern Baptist Convention has voted on. So uh, I'm not faulting them for making the traditional statement. They have every right to do it. Uh, It's a public statement. People have signed it and, and it's out there and I think it needs to be interacted with. And so in Article 2, under the sinfulness of man, here's what they say. We affirm that because of the fall of Adam, every person inherits a nature and environment inclined toward sin, and that every person who is capable of moral action will sin. Each person's sin alone brings the wrath of a holy God, broken fellowship with him, ever worsening selfishness and destructiveness, death and condemnation to an eternity in hell don't necessarily have a problem with that statement per se. I don't think it's quite as comprehensive as it should be. I don't like the language of a, of, of an environment inclined towards sin. I know that's what the Baptist faith and message says. But the denial is where I really have a problem. Here's their denial, and this is where a lot of people have charged them with being semi-Pelagian. Again, if you have conversations with them, they I don't believe they're semi-Pelagian. I'm not going to give them that label. They have a very interesting view of the fallenness of man, uh, a, a different view of prevenient grace. I, I just kind of uh, explained at least Leighton Flowers' view of that. But here's the denial. We deny that Adam's sin resulted in the incapacitation of any person's free will or rendered any person guilty before he has personally sinned. While no sinner is remotely capable of achieving salvation through his own effort, we deny that any sinner is saved apart from a free response to the Holy Spirit's drawing through the gospel. This is where a lot of Calvinists have a major problem with this statement because it's a clear denial of imputed guilt from Adam or it's a denial of imputed guilt from Adam and it's a denial of total inability. They're very clear in what they're denying. They are denying that Adam's guilt was imputed to all his posterity and that Adam's sin rendered us totally unable to respond positively to God. Now, as Calvinists, we affirm that we're guilty both for Adam's initial trespass, his guilt is imputed to us, and we're also guilty for our own sin as well. And the argument comes over how do you interpret Romans 5.12? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. That's the real rub. The end of chapter, or the end of verse 12, because all sinned. Now, obviously, we would all affirm that sin came into the world through Adam. Adam brought sin into the world. Death came through sin. Death spread. But why does Paul use because all sinned past tense. Who is the all and when did it happen? Now, when you read the traditionalist statements and you read their interpretation of Romans 5.12, I am not going to say they are semi-Pelagian, but their interpretation of Romans 5.12 agrees with the Pelagian view. You see the distinction? Their understanding of Romans 5.12 is exactly what Pelagius argued. And so both major Calvinists and predominantly Arminians interpret Romans 5.12 as the imputed sin of Adam as our federal head. So what does it mean that all sinned? Why is it in the past tense and why is all sinning? Well, here's the the, the Calvinist federal headship view. We believe that because Adam was our federal head or our representative of the human race, when he sinned in the garden as our federal head, as our representative, in a sense, we all sinned with him there. Now, obviously, we we were not physically there. We did not commit the sin because we were not created yet. But in this covenant relationship that we have with Adam as our representative, his sin is our sin. So it would kind of be like this. So, for example, you have a representative from your state legislature, maybe your senator or your house of representative, and they go to Congress to represent you. And so they vote representing the state. And so the vote that they make and the decisions they make have an impact on on you in the state. So, for example, in the state of Colorado here, I have a representative. And and when he goes to Washington to make decisions and vote, he's representing me. And so the decisions he's make fall back on me and and, and how things operate in my state. Now, I know that's that's kind of a, a loose analogy or loose illustration, but it's the same concept that what... Adam did in the garden, we all did with him, and thus we are implicated in his guilt. Yes, we are guilty of Adam's sin imputed to us, and we're guilty of our own sin. And the reason why we have to take it that way is because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. You see, all throughout Romans chapter 5, Paul is arguing between being in Christ and in Adam. And, And if you deny the imputed guilt of Adam coming to you through his fall, then, how do you understand christ's righteousness being imputed to you in justification now that's a whole topic for a different for a different discussion. We can go back and talk about that, but basically it's interesting the the nature of a fallen man, according to the traditionalists, is that they're sinful, they have an inclination towards sin, and they can actually respond freely to the gospel when presented these means, but they deny imputed guilt and they deny total inability. Under Article 8, under the free will of man, listen to their denial. We deny that the decision of faith is an act of God rather than a response of the person. We deny that there is an effectual call for certain people that is different from a general call to any person who hears and understands the gospel. Now, this is very problematic in the way it's worded. We deny that the decision of faith, first of all, that language is a little weird, the decision of faith. Uh, Is this decisionism? Why is the word decision there? Uh, The decision of faith is an act of God. What does that mean? We deny that the decision of faith is an act of God. If they mean that God believes for us, that God is the one that that acts for us, then obviously we would deny that as well. We do not, as Calvinists, believe God believes for us or believes in us. What we do believe is that um, God grants saving faith and regeneration. So we, we deny, this is what they say, we deny that the decision of faith is an act of God. I think what they're trying to say is that they're, they're trying to, I think, to deny sovereign regeneration, that God does not grant saving faith. We deny there's an effectual call for certain people that's different from the general call to any person who hears and understands the gospel. Uh, I, I have a major problem with this. How can they deny an effectual call? I mean, just read Romans chapter 8. Uh, there There is clear evidence from the scripture that there is a call that only the elect hear and respond to, and that there's an outward call. And so for them to deny the effectual call and the outward call um, is a little interesting. And so here's their assumption. Their assumption is that anyone who hears and understands the gospel is able to make a decision. We deny that there's an effectual call for certain people that's different from a general call to any, any person who hears and understands the gospel. To any person who hears and understands the gospel. Uh, the wording, uh, the one thing I don't like about the traditional statement besides the theology is it's poorly worded. Uh, the grammar is not very precise. The language is not very precise. It, it's actually ambiguous. And, uh, and I'm, I'm concerned as a public statement that as they've put this out, it's you think if they're going to put out a public statement, it would, it would have some precision in the language. Um and it doesn't. And so uh, it's interesting the way that they, they, they word this. The, the assumption is that anyone who hears and understands the gospel is able to make a decision. What's, what's really lacking in that statement is conversion is not just hearing and understanding the gospel. Re, re, the conversion is repentance and faith. Yes, a lot of people hear and understand the gospel. Um, and A lot of people hear the gospel. A lot of people understand the gospel, but is that saving faith? We're going to talk about that in just a moment. There's a lot of people that hear and understand the gospel. But is that saving faith? Is that true repentance? Is that true conversion? Well, let's compare this to the London Baptist Confession of 1689. As you know, this is the confession of faith that I personally hold to um, I think it's a, it's a well written statement. It's very similar to the Westminster Confession of Faith that the Presbyterians use, but um, it's a Baptistic version of that. Um, I think it's stronger in some areas, especially in the area of baptism. Um, it differs in baptism and in polity, um, and also some, some statements, some minor statements as well. But um, in the London Baptist Confession of 1689, in chapter 6 of the fall of man of sin and the punishment thereof. Listen to what the London Baptist Confession states and see how precise the language is compared to the traditional statement. Paragraph three, they being the root and by God's appointment, standing in the room instead of all mankind, it's talking about Adam and Eve, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending them from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin, and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all their other miseries, spiritual, temporal, eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. Okay, so the Second Baptist, uh, the London Baptist Confession, affirms imputed guilt from Adam to all of his posterity. Paragraph four. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. That's that's an important statement, because it's affirming total inability, that we are utterly unable and utterly indisposed and disabled to do all good. We're wholly inclined to all evil, not just an environment inclined to evil, and actually the transgressions that we commit proceed out of the sinful nature. And so that statement is very, very precise. Chapter 9 of free will in the London Baptist Confession, paragraph 3. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability to will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So, as a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Again, a very strong statement of total inability. And so we affirm that. So, here's the assertion number one that I'm going to assert. And I think that this is an assertion that the traditionalists need to deal with because they are not dealing with this. Here's the assertion. Here's my assertion. Repentance and faith are commanded by the Lord and as such are part of his law. It's very important. Repentance and faith are commands by the Lord And as such, since they are commands, they are imperatives to be done, they're part of His law. Now let me just stop. Oftentimes when Christians think about the law, they automatically go to the Ten Commandments. Or they may say, well, we're not under the law, we're under grace, and so the law doesn't matter anymore. When I'm saying the word law I'm simply meaning anything in the scripture that's prescribed by God that we must do. In other words, anything that's in the imperative mood in the scriptures. Obviously, you have the Old Testament law. You had the civil law. You had the ceremonial law. You had the moral law. But in the New Testament, you also have law. And so anything that is commanded by God for us to do is considered part of his law. And so we need to agree that the imperatives in the Bible are part of God's law, what God demands, what God prescribes as his moral will. What is God's moral will? What is part of God's law? What does God command? Well, if you just read the New Testament, it's very clear that God commands all people to repent and believe. So repentance and faith are commands by God for sinners to do. They're in the imperative mood. They're part of God's law. Matthew 3, 2, Jesus says, repent. Actually, John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. That is in the imperative mood, which means it's a command to be obeyed. It's not an indicative. An indicative in the Greek language is a statement of fact. It's a statement of what God has done a statement of who you are in Christ. It's not a command for you to do anything. It is something that God has done. It's a statement of reality, a statement of truth. Uh, The indicative is is what God has done or or who we are in Christ. It's never a command. And so repent for the kingdom at hand. Repent is not an indicative. It's an imperative. And thus it's part of God's command. Jesus in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's very clear. Repent and believe in the gospel. Those are both in the imperative mood. You are commanded by Jesus to repent and believe. It's part of His law. It's part of His command. It's part of His demand. He's demanding everyone to repent and believe. What did Peter say at Pentecost in Acts 2.38? Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's a command there. Repent. In Acts. Paul at Mars Hill, when he's talking to the philosophers in Athens about the unknown God. In Acts 17.30. Paul says the time of ignorance God overlooked. And now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands it. So God demands, God commands repentance and faith. That's part of His law, what He demands. Acts 26.20, when Paul is giving his testimony, declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. They should repent and turn to God. Again, it's, it's a command. So we've got to establish that repentance and faith are commands by God in the imperative mood in the Greek text. And thus, if they are commands by God, they are part of His law. Okay, that's assertion number one. Assertion number two. Our moral inability means we cannot submit to God's Law. That is, we lack the capacity to repent and believe. If we cannot submit to God's law, don't just truncate the law to mean we can't, we can't do works of righteousness in order to earn our salvation. No, the Bible says we cannot do anything related to God's law. That means prohibitions as well as the things that he commands us to do. And so we've just established that repenting and believing are part of God's law. And so my assertion is our moral inability means that we cannot submit to God's law. In other words, we cannot submit to the command to repent and believe. Romans 8, 5-9 For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, let's just stop and look at what this text says. Paul is contrasting Believers from non-believers, very clearly. Non-believers are those whose minds are set on the flesh. Non-believers are those whose minds are hostile to God. Non-believers are those who cannot submit to God's law, do not submit to God's law, cannot please God. So, let's look at this passage of Scripture. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. You've got a statement of incapacitation, a statement of inability, something that a a person in the flesh cannot do. At face value, you've got to accept that there's something that a lost person cannot do, lacks the ability to do, cannot submit to God's law, cannot please God. Now, where the rub comes is how the traditionalists are going to define God's law. The traditionalists will say, well, obviously we can't submit to God's law in the sense that we can't save ourselves. We can't do works of righteousness in order to earn our salvation. And so they've truncated the law to simply mean the moral law of of righteousness that we can't earn our salvation. And in a sense, that's true. I don't disagree with that statement. We can't earn our salvation by keeping the law. But we have to understand what is God's law. Well, we've just assumed, or not assumed, we've just asserted that part of God's law is repentance and faith. If those are commands by Jesus in the Gospels, if those are commands by Peter and Acts and by Paul and Acts, if those are commands, then that's part of God's law. And Paul says here, the sinful mind on the flesh, the hostile mind, cannot do that. You can't submit to that law. It doesn't say that you can't submit to it as a means to earn your salvation, which I agree with. You cannot submit to the demands of God's law. All the demands of God's law. Repentance and faith. Anything that God demands. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And and so you have to ask the question, well, what pleases God? Well, does repentance and faith please God? Yes, it pleases God because it's part of His law. The law of the Lord is good. God's commands are pleasing to Him. That's why He commands those things. Paul goes on to say, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So he's making a contrast saying, listen, you as a Christian... You have the Holy Spirit. You have been saved. You have been born again. Your mind's not set on the flesh. You have been changed. But for the lost person, they lack the ability to submit to God's law. And if all you do is truncate God's law to say, yeah, yeah, you, a lost person, uh, all, you know, they, they can't submit to, to God's law, but they can admit, they can't submit to God's law as a means to, to earn their salvation, but, but they can admit that they can't keep God's law. That's what they'll say. Obviously, we can't keep God's law, but we, doesn't, that text doesn't say we can't admit we can't keep God's law. Well, no, that text doesn't say we can't admit that we can't keep God's law. That's not the point. Admitting that we can't keep God's law is not what Paul says there. It says we do not submit to God's law, all of God's law. And yes, in the context of Romans, it's talking about works righteousness, but we have to understand that when we talk about God's law, we're, we're, we're talking about anything that God commands. And we've established that that is repentance and faith. Let's look at, let's look at another passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 6-14. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the deep things of God. Okay, let's just stop right there. These things, in verse 10, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. What are these things that God has revealed to us through the Spirit? Well he said what no eye has seen, nor heart imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. This is the gospel. All throughout the context of First Corinthians chapter one and two, Paul has been making the argument the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, to us who are being called, to us who have been chosen by God. It's the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. Uh, God has prepared these things beforehand for our glory. God has established heaven. Uh, All these things God has done for his elect, the gospel, the cross, the wisdom, all these things he has revealed to us through the Spirit. Verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person who's in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we've not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So what does the Holy Spirit help us do? He helps us understand the things freely given to us by God. What are these things freely given to us by God? Everything he's been arguing in in 1 Corinthians. The cross, salvation, election, our calling, all of these things that he's already established. We are able to understand these things, the three things God's given to us in the gospel, the things God's prepared for us. How are we able to understand those things? Because of the Spirit. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, uh, we as the apostles are able to be teachers to you to help you understand that. And so God has given apostles... In the early church to impart spiritual truths, by extension today, God has given pastors and teachers to be able to exegete and help people understand these truths. Okay, So Paul's saying, listen, you the elect, you who are chosen, and, and you can go back and read the context of 1 Corinthians, he calls those of you who are called, uh, those of you who are, who are um, believing this, though, not the ones who are perishing You are able to understand these, and and these mysteries, these deep things of God are, are the things of the gospel he's just talked about. We're able to understand these things through the power of the Spirit, through human teachers that have the illumination of the Spirit that help us. But then notice what he says in verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Okay, what is the natural person not able to do? Now, first of all, the natural person is a lost person. Now, what apologists say up in Romans? The person that's mind to sell in the flesh cannot submit to God, cannot please God. In other words, cannot repent and believe, cannot do the things to prepare themselves, cannot do anything to bring themselves to faith, even, even believing and repenting. And here it says the natural person does not is not able to understand the things of the Spirit of God. Well, what are these things of the Spirit of God that was just talked about? Everything related to salvation. So here's the thing. It's interesting. If you go back up to Leighton Flowers' earlier assertion, God uses creation. God uses the Word of God. God uses um, conscience, the church, his bride, all these things to assist or aid man in, in, in enabling him to respond. And right here, Paul says, the lost person's not able to understand unless they are spiritually discerned. Now, he may redefine what it means to be spiritually discerned. He may say, the way that God has overcome that inability is through those means. So when the Bible comes and when the Word comes and when the, the, your conscience pricks you and when you see creation, those are effective means to overcome this inability to understand. I don't know how he would argue that. And so when you've got this whole idea of inability and the fallen man, the, the argument from the, the traditionalist is mankind is sinful, but he's not incapacitated in his will. He doesn't have the imputed guilt of Adam. He hasn't lost the ability to be able to, when confronted with the gospel, be assisted to make a positive acknowledgement of the need to be saved. And so the the interesting thing about all of these um, interactions between Leighton Flowers and Dr. White is, and Dr. White pointed this out, was that, over and over again, Leighton Flowers kept using the word acknowledge. It doesn't mean he can't admit or he can't acknowledge that he needs a Savior. Well, the question is is simply acknowledging that you need a Savior the same thing as turning from sin and embracing Christ? So fundamentally, the question we've got to ask is you know, what, what is conversion? What is conversion? Is it just admitting your need or is it repenting and believing? So the first thing we've established is the nature of fallen man. Let's look at the need for regeneration to overcome spiritual and moral inability. Okay, this is article five of the traditionalist statement. We affirm that any person who responds to the gospel with repentance and faith is born again through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's a new creation in Christ and enters at that moment, he believes, into eternal life. Um, that don't necessarily have a problem with that, except for they put um, re- repentance and faith as the cause or as antecedent to being born again. In their view, repentance and faith triggers the new birth. That, that's something we would deny. Here's their denial on the traditional statement. We deny that any person is regenerated prior to or apart from hearing and responding to the gospel. That's a very confusing statement. We affirm that regeneration is prior to conversion, but we deny, along with them, that regeneration is apart from the, the means of hearing and responding or hearing the word of God. Um, and again, it's it's very interesting. They're, they're, the terminology in the traditional statement is very, they use a lot of hearing and responding, hearing and responding to the gospel, hearing and responding to the gospel. Well, a lot of people hear the gospel and a lot of people may respond positively or negatively, but there's not a lot of language about repentance and faith, issues of conversion. Let's talk about um, the London Baptist Confession, chapter 10 on effectual calling. Um, let's look at paragraph two, just for the sake of time. This effectual call is God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, not from any power agency in the creature, being wholly passive therein, but being dead in sins and trespasses until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power, that which is raised up Christ from the dead. Again, the, the effectual call is powerful. It creates saving faith. It regenerates. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us to new life. Okay, so let's, let's just go back through my assertions. Assertion number one, repentance and faith are moral imperatives, commands by God that we must obey as they're part of God's law. That's number one. Assertion number two, because of our inability to submit to God's law, we cannot exercise repentance and faith. We are unable to do that. So here's assertion number three, and it flows logically. Due to our moral inability to submit to God's law by repenting and believing, God must overcome this deadness through sovereign regeneration. This is where we differ with the traditionalists. Their view is that man, when assisted with these means, has the libertarian free will to be enabled to respond either positively or negatively, to the gospel information. And really, there's no need for any type of internal call, effectual call, regeneration by the Holy Spirit to overcome deadness because they don't believe in deadness. They don't believe in spiritual inability. Again, this is where they differ from Calvinists and Arminians. Both Calvinists and Arminians believe in spiritual deadness. The Arminian answer is prevenient grace. Our answer is sovereign regeneration. Acts 16.13. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. Okay. I don't know how you how you deal with this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Okay. Who's the antecedent operator in this? Who opens, in other words, who opens whose heart? Does when Paul is speaking, does the text say Paul was speaking and she paid attention to what he said because the preaching of Paul was enough to assist her to be able to make a decision and thereby she repented and believed so that her heart would be open to the Lord. That's not what the Greek text says. What's the order? The Lord opened her heart. Okay, the Lord had to do it. She didn't open her own heart. The Lord opened her heart. And what did that result in? It resulted in her in her ability to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. So the, the traditionalist would probably look at this passage of Scripture, and I, I don't want to interpret it for them, but based upon the definitions we've seen, their definition would be, yes, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. But it was an assisting type of grace to where the message came, Paul came, God used the means of of the Holy Spirit Word to come to her, and that was an assistive type of means, and that was enough to enable her to have a response. Whereas we would say, she was not even able to pay attention to what Paul said. And when we say pay attention, we're not like, well, she she couldn't understand the facts, that's not, what Paul, that's not what Luke's saying here, that she, she wasn't able to pay attention in the sense that you know she had an, a lack of attention span. No, what, what was happening here was, it's assumed in the text that she had a heart that could not open itself. It assumes that she could not pay attention to what Paul said when he came. So Paul came preaching words. Paul came preaching words. Paul came preaching the gospel, and and she couldn't understand that. She couldn't pay attention to that. She couldn't respond to that positively unless God did something first. God had to open her heart, and then she was able to pay attention. Then we find out that she was baptized, and the church was birthed in her house. Listen to what John Calvin says in his Institutes, which I've been reading devotionally uh, the past couple of weeks just to just to kind of, you know, focus in on, on some some doctrines. And, and I really like uh, what Calvin has to say. And I encourage you to, at some point in your life, read the Institutes of the Christian Religion by Calvin. But notice what he says. Quote, In regenerating his people, God indeed accomplishes much for them. He destroys the imputation of sin by supplying the agency of the Spirit, which enables them to come off victorious from the contest against sin. I, I like that. God destroys the imputation of sin through the agency of the Spirit, which enables a person to be victorious against sin. In other words, because of imputed guilt and sin of Adam, you're not victorious to do anything positively to come to Christ. You have to be enabled or given the ability, and that comes through the Holy Spirit. So let's just look at our assertions, the nature of uh, the nature of fallen man. We make the assertion that repentance and faith are part of God's law, and he commands repentance and faith as part of his law. Assertion number two, we cannot submit to God's law. Therefore, we cannot in and of ourselves repent and believe. Number three, thus, because we cannot repent and believe and submit to God's law, we need God to sovereignly regenerate us, to grant us the ability to repent and believe. So let's talk thirdly about the necessity of authentic conversion. The necessity of authentic conversion. The traditionalist statement does address conversion, repentance and faith, but it does not clearly define these terms. I think it assumes them. It uses the word repentance and faith in the traditional statement, but it doesn't clearly define what is meant by repentance and faith. Notice how precise the London Baptist Confession is on repentance. Paragraph two. Whereas there is none that does good and does not sin, and the best of men may, through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption dwelling in them, With the prevalency of temptation fallen to great sin and provocations, God has in the covenant of grace mercifully provided that believers so sinning and falling be renewed through repentance unto salvation. Paragraph 3. This saving repentance is an evangelical grace, whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin does by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, Detestation of it, and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace, with the purpose and endeavor by the supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well pleasing in all things. It's a great definition of repentance, the evangelical grace that the Holy Spirit grants you, where you are sorrowful for, for sin, You're, you you detest sin, you, you abhor it, you want to turn from it. Now there are some elements of repentance. That the God, that the Bible speaks about when it when it talks about repentance, there's an intellectual element. Romans three twenty: for by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Before you can repent of sin, you have to have knowledge of sin, and so that comes through the law, comes through the, through through the preaching. There's an emotional element. When you are confronted with the demands of the law, when you're confronted with your own sinfulness, you respond with some type of an emotional sorrow. David in Psalm 51, when he had sinned against Bathsheba and had Uriah killed. Um, Psalm 51, 3-5, through five, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, and only you have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Talk about the emotional element there of confession, repentance. I was born dead in sin. I was conceived in sin. I am blameworthy. I've sinned against you. I am a transgressor. I know, God, that I have personally offended you because of my nature. It's my nature to sin against you because I was conceived in iniquity. Paul gives this emotional element to repentance in 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10. through Paul says, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Part of repentance is this godly grief so there's, an, there's a, a, an intellectual element where you, you're, you're faced with the fact that you are a sinner and you've sinned against God. Then there's the emotional element that it grieves you. You're sorrowful. You are bothered. You hate that sin. You confess that sin. You admit that sin. But that's not all that's related to repentance. There is an volitional element. There's actually the turning away. Isaiah 55, 6 through 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him, to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let the wicked forsake his way. There comes a, a, a change of mind where you truly understand that you are born in sin, you are personally guilty. You stand condemned before a holy God. You are sorrowful, not because you got caught. And then you actually turn from that sin and turn towards Christ. Joel 2.13 Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Acts 3, 19-20, Repent therefore and turn back from your sins, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. So authentic conversion involves repentance, which is more than just an acknowledging that you need salvation. There's a lot of people that acknowledge their need for a Savior and never repent. They never experience true, authentic Genuine repentance. And it's something that God has to grant. In 2 Timothy 2, 24-25, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Notice who's in charge of granting the repentance. It's God. God may perhaps grant them. Paul's not sure whether God's going to grant them repentance because Paul doesn't know the identity of the elect. God may or God may not. If they're elect, God will grant them repentance. But it's up to God if he's going to do it. God has to grant it. God has to give it. If they're going to repent unto life, if they're going to truly be sorrowful for sin and repent and turn to God, God has to work that in them. Calvin, again, makes a great statement about repentance. He talks about legal repentance. He says, legal repentance is where the sinner is stung with the sense of his sin and is overwhelmed with the fear of the divine anger, but he remains in the state of perturbation, unable to escape from it. In other words, what he's saying is legal repentance is you're bothered by the sin. You're sorry you got caught. You know that there's punishment and you're bothered by it, but you never actually turn. You never actually repent. You may acknowledge that you're a sinner, but you actually never repent. He says, evangelical repentance is where the sinner through, though grievously downcast in himself, yet looks up and sees in Christ the cure for his wound, the solace of his terror, the haven rest from his misery. Listen to Calvin's definition of conversion. He says, quote, a real conversion of our life unto God proceeding from sincere and serious fear of God and consisting in the mortification of our flesh and the old man and the quickening of the spirit. In other words, repentance is more than just, hey, I'm acknowledging that I need a savior. I'm acknowledging I need a savior. Hey, I I need a savior. I'm admitting that I'm wrong. No, repentance is a deep work of grace. The Holy Spirit has to bring you the knowledge of your own personal sin and guilt. You have to have a godly sorrow over that where you hate it. Not because you got caught, but because it's an offense against the holy God and you're sorrowful, and you detest it, and you know that that sin flows from your nature as well as from your actions, and then you actually have to repent, and you have to cast yourself at the mercy of Christ. You have to come to Christ to to cleanse you. You have to, to own up to that and turn. That's a whole lot more than just admitting I need a Savior. That's repentance, but there's also faith. Repentance and faith. What is saving Faith. Well, let's look at the London Baptist Confession again. Chapter 14 of Saving Faith, paragraph one. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word, by which also and by administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer and other means appointed of God. It is creased and strengthened. Paragraph two. By this faith, the Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself and also apprehends the excellency therein above all other writings and things in the world, as it bears forth the glory of God and his attributes, the excellency of Christ in his nature and offices, and the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit in his workings and operations, and so is enabled to cast his soul upon the truth consequently believed, and also acts differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life, and that which is to come, but the principal act of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by the virtue of the covenant of grace. Now that's a, uh, that's a long definition. So here's my, my fifth, or fourth assertion. So what are my assertions? Number one, assertion number one, repentance and faith are part of the law of God and they're commanded by God. Assertion number two, Because of our moral inability, we cannot submit to God's law to repent and believe. Assertion number three, we need sovereign regeneration. Assertion number four, and it's tied to it, genuine repentance and faith are impossible to exercise without regeneration. Genuine, saving faith and repentance are impossible to exercise without regeneration. You can acknowledge your sin. You can admit you're a sinner. You can admit your need for a Savior. But that's not genuine repentance and saving faith. Genuine repentance and saving faith is a deep work of the Spirit whereby God overcomes your deadness, quickens you to new life, and grants you the ability to repent and believe. So here's assertion number five. Simply acknowledging sin or admitting the need for salvation is not true repentance and faith. Just admitting that you're a sinner And admitting that you need a Savior is not true repentance and faith. Listen to how the Scriptures talk about faith, especially in the Gospel of John. I've been preaching through John for the past year and a half. Uh, John 5, 39-40, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You refuse to come. So part of believing is actually coming to faith in Christ. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father has sent me, draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, we've talked about this over and over again. That verse right there teaches very clearly. No one has the inherent ability to come to faith in Christ unless God draws him. And does God draw everyone? No, God only draws those who've been given to Jesus by the Father and only those are raised up on the last day. So you cannot come, you cannot exercise genuine saving faith and repentance without God's drawing. John 6, 50-51. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that One may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Eat this bread. John talks about Jesus giving this metaphor of of eating his bread, uh, drinking um, his uh, blood. It's this whole idea of totally consuming, taking in Christ, coming to Christ, receiving Christ. Um, John 6.65, Jesus reiterates it again. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. I mean, twice Jesus has to say it. You can't come. Nobody can come. You can't repent. You can't believe. You can't come. There's no saving faith. There's no authentic, genuine saving faith unless it's granted by the Father, unless you're drawn by the Father, unless God grants the gifts of repentance and faith in regeneration. Why can't you? You're not able. Why are you not able? Because you cannot submit to God's law. What is God's law? To repent and believe. You can't because you are morally incapable of doing that. John 7 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So all throughout the Gospel of John, thirsting, drinking, coming, receiving, repenting, believing, feasting, all of these things talk more about, it's not mental assent. It's not acknowledging that Jesus exists. It's not believing facts about the Gospel. It's not admitting your need. Genuine repentance and Faith are deep works of the Holy Spirit, whereby a sinner is genuinely converted. They are able to repent from sin, come to faith in Christ. These are evangelical graces that are given in the new birth. So what's the conclusion? The moral inability of man renders him powerless to submit to God's law. And what does God's law require? Repentance and faith in Christ in order to be saved. Mere mental assent or acknowledging sin is not authentic conversion. God must overcome this inability through sovereign regeneration to empower or enable the sinner with the gifts of repentance and faith in order for them to truly be saved. It's not just God uses means to aid or assist a person to be able to make a response. That's the traditionalist view. So what do the traditionalists deny that we hold to? And I think that they would agree with these denials. Number one, they deny the moral inability of fallen man to submit to God's law. Number two, they deny the need for God to overcome inability through sovereign regeneration. And number three, this is where we may disagree and they may have pushback They deny the necessity of authentic conversion, which may lead one to believe that they adopt an anti-lordship theology. I'm not going to accuse them of anti-lordship, but the talk makes it sound like you hear, you understand, you acknowledge, you admit. That's not genuine conversion. Admitting, acknowledging, asking for help, that's not genuine conversion. Genuine conversion is repenting, and believing, bowing the knee to King Jesus because God has done a sovereign work of grace in your heart to overcome deadness, to overcome imputed guilt, to overcome wickedness, to overcome all of the effects of the fall that have rendered you incapable of doing any good towards God. He overcomes that through His gracious sovereign intervention and sovereign regeneration to grant the elect the gifts of repentance and faith so that they can't actually genuinely be converted, that there is a change, that there is new life, that there is authentic conversion, transformation, not just a mere acknowledging that I'm a sinner or acknowledging that I have a need. And so these are issues that I think that need to be talked about, need to be addressed. And I'm thankful for Dr. White on his program for um, illuminating me to some of these things that maybe I didn't see before. And so um, again, I thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Uh, this has been a, uh, a long discussion about these, these things, but I would love to get your feedback. Uh, you can email me. Um, go to seancole.net. You can find my email. Uh, you can Facebook message me. Um, you can uh, Twitter message me. Um, any way that you want to get a hold of me, I'd love to, uh, to hear from you. And again, uh, you can go on iTunes and give us a review and rating. That would really help us to get uh, more exposure. You can share this podcast through your social media outlets as well. And so I thank you for listening. I really do appreciate you you. Um, And until next time, may God uh, bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you, and may you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.